Welcome to We The Podcast. This is a special episode of We The Podcast. And We The Podcast, as you know, is all about how people outside the billionaire and millionaire class, you know, most of us, engage the economy. Like everybody else, I was surprised to learn about the sudden death of Antonin Scalia, who was a Supreme Court Justice in the United States. Condolences to the family. But with his vacancy and the fight to replace him, it got me thinking, you know, how important who is on the Supreme Court is, you know, not just to our basic rights of voting, the right to choose, things like that, social rights that we've got to have, but it's also a very big deal in how ordinary working people can engage the economy. So today I'm joined by three very special guests who are going to talk about the Supreme Court, upcoming cases, past cases, and how these cases and the members of the Supreme Court really impact the bread and butter issues of working Americans. I'm really pleased to welcome you here, Marge Baker, with the People for the American Way. How you doing? I'm doing great, glad to be here. Absolutely, and Caroline Fredrickson with the American Constitutional Society, welcome. Thanks so much. And Kyle Berry with the Alliance for Justice. Thank you both for being here with me today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. And so when most people think of the Supreme Court, they think of famous cases about things like abortion, discrimination, and gay rights, but that's not all the Supreme Court rules on. In fact, most of what they rule on it's stuff that we may never hear about and doesn't always hit the headlines. Just about every part of our lives is affected by important cases, known and unknown, that the Supreme Court has heard. So let me ask all of you, can you talk about some of the day-to-day -day issues that the Supreme Court has ruled on recently that impact the economic stability of American families? So let me, let me start with um, some important lines of cases that are about the fact that we can't have a country, a government, that works for the American people if we don't have a democracy that works for all of us. That's right. So there's two really, really important cases. One was the Citizens United case, a 5-4, a very narrowly decided 5-4 case that I'm sure most of the listeners know about, um, and that basically um, determined that corporations have the right to spend unlimited sums of money to influence our elections. And that case opened the floodgates to this huge amount of big money that we're seeing in, the, in our elections. And the problem was that the reasoning of the court that was supplemented by layer court decisions was that, was that basically, essentially, that their representatives at, in the US government um, and in state government could not set reasonable limits on the raising and spending of money on elections. So, so Marge, is Citizens United premised on the idea that money is is somehow free speech? Yeah, it's premised on a very flawed interpretation of the First Amendment that says essentially that spending of money on elections is the equivalent of speech. And where that leads you down the road is an inability of Congress and the states to regulate in this arena. And that's why we have this huge flow of money in our elections. It's really drowning out the voices of average Americans. So it's a really serious decision. And what the court has said, basically the only basis on which you could possibly regulate is if it's to stop bribery. Well, that's ridiculous. Everybody understands that the ways in which money influences elections beyond just you know, bribing an official, it's, it's access, it's paying for access. So that's a serious problem. And then if you couple that with the court's Shelby County decision, 
which was the decision that, uh, that really gutted the Voting Rights Act that's there to protect you know, hundreds and thousands of Americans' right to vote. Um, you have essentially the Supreme Court with very narrow 5-4 majorities, but very conservative, radical majorities, essentially shutting down our democracy. And so that's a huge way in which that affects everything, because it affects who gets elected. So it affects whether or not we can have representatives of we the people doing the people's business and dealing with all of the issues that you've raised. Kyle, let me ask you this. So in an age when we have historic inequality and where money is speech, and if you don't have any money, then presumably you may not have much speech, uh, and we're shutting down voting rights, as Marsh has pointed out, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that Congress could be filled up with a bunch of people who are here to do the bidding of the highest bidder and that uh, the, ordin the, the power that the people have, which is a vote, is being curtailed and shrank? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. You know, Citizens United is e explicitly part of the corporate agenda to buy elections. But more than that, there's a broader part of that agenda that involves um, the Supreme Court itself. It's, it's one thing to buy elections. They want also to control the law. And one of the ways um, recently that large corporations have consolidated a lot of economic power at the expense of everyday Americans, working families, consumers, is by avoiding using a corporate-friendly Supreme Court to avoid liability when they break the law and they harm workers and consumers. You know, the courts are supposed to be a place where you can go for equal justice, regardless of your wealth or your power or your status. Um, but under the Roberts Court in particular, with uh, with good reason, often referred to as the corporate court, um, they've been very helpful to corporate wrongdoers by effectively uh, slamming the courthouse doors on workers and consumers whose rights are violated and need the courts to seek redress. So actually, Kyle, you're saying something interesting. It's not just the cases that they do decide on. Mm -hmm. It's the ones they refuse to decide. Yeah. It's when they will not grant cert on cases when consumers or workers our interests are at heart. Uh, you want to jump well, in? Well, I was just going to add to um, what Kyle was saying that um, one of the key things that they do is not just not granting cert. It's actually they change the rules. Hmm. So, you know, when you can write the rules, you win the game, right? So corporations have worked with the Roberts Court, the corporate court, to essentially make it harder and harder to bring a case from the beginning. So they erect all sorts of barriers to getting into the courthouse. It's harder to bring a class action. Yeah. So collective action for workers who are, or individuals, consumers who've been harmed is harder. They make it harder to make your case through the pleadings, that is the documents you file, it's harder. They make it harder to win attorney's fees. So it costs, if you're a, a consumer who's been harmed and you have to pay a corporation's attorney's fees, you're not gonna bring that case. Right. And there are all sorts of ways in which the courthouse doors have been closed, including the requirement of signing an arbitration agreement, which doesn't let you go to court at all. I think what people don't recognize, and I'd have to say that my colleagues at People for the American Way and the Alliance for Justice have done a lot of work um, with us, the American Constitution Society, on these issues. But you know, the bottom line is Congress, throughout the years, has passed quite a number of important protective statutes that have provided people with protection against discrimination, with consumers, uh, protection against fraud by companies, with, with citizens with protections against environmental degradation, but in secret and in the background, what's been happening is all those rights are being hollowed out because you may think you have the right because it exists in a statute, but the courts are not letting you get well, in the door. And, yeah. and classic example, um, the Lily Ledbetter case, right? Lily Ledbetter was- You read my mind. She's a Goodyear employee. She worked for years, year after year after year. She was the victim of pay discrimination. She didn't discover the pay discrimination 
until late in her employment because it was part of the you know, company's policy not to disclose who earned what. And she was told by the court in an opinion by Justice Alito that she had to have sued when the pay discrimination first happened, even though she didn't know about it. Well, I mean, yeah, talk and, about a catch-22. Yeah, and a little this bit is of what back, the court's doing. And a little bit of background on that, March. Lily Ledbetter had her case brought, her discrimination case brought to a jury which had men and women on it. They found for her. Yes. And the jury uh, decision was snatched away. Yes. Because of this bizarre yes. reading of statutes of limitations, and I remember voting, uh, one of the best votes I ever had in Congress was to, correct was to correct that injustice. But think about Lily Ledbetter working for years and years and years, day in, day out, being paid less because mm -hmm. she's female, and then she brings her case to court, and they say, you're right, but you didn't act quickly enough, even though you didn't even know to act, right. and too bad. And fortunately in that case, you could act, Congress could act to correct the harm that the court did by clearly totally misinterpreting what Congress's intent was. Citizens United is an example where you can't correct that by statute. There's nothing you can do other than amend the Constitution or shape, change the shape on the Supreme Court so they start looking at these issues differently. Well, change, change the shape on the Supreme Court, well, you know, <laughs> Justice Scalia's um, gone to his reward and um, they're the, the the Senate saying they're not going to fill that. Well, this is, you know, if I can say, um, speaking um, on behalf of all the constitutional law scholars who are part of the ACS, the American Constitution Society Network, is not only unprecedented in terms of the history of Senate practice, but is completely out of step with our Constitution, which has duties that are set out for the president, which is to nominate to fill those vacancies and for the Senate to advise and consent. Now they can certainly vote no if they disagree with the president's selection, but it is their duty to provide the advice and consent and saying we will not, we're taking our toys and going home and you can't, even though you're the elected president, nominate someone to fill this vacancy? It is outrageous. Not even an hour after the announcement of Justice Scalia's death, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of the next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. What he's really saying is that the over 66 million people who elected President Obama actually don't matter, that the Senate uh, is going to just curtail the president's term to seven years, and the Senate has never taken more than 125 days to vote on a successor once the president has nominated someone President Obama has 11 months or nine months, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, uh, in the office. Um, and that's a lot more than 125 days, which is the average. So I guess, you know, I'm seeing this as a big deal. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, Marge mentioned um, at the outset the, the critical importance of a well-functioning democracy for um, uh, our country and for the rights of everyday people. And what we're talking about here is really the integrity of our democratic institutions and of our democratic um, processes. And this is really uh, a strategy, the strategy of obstructing and, and of the Senate Republicans just admitting that they're refusing to do their jobs um, is their attempt to nullify the results of a presidential election. We've had an election to decide who gets to appoint Justice Scalia's replacement. That has already happened. And uh, their strategy of, of obstruction is absolutely trying to undo the results of an election. And they've been trying, they've been trying, that's been their strategy for the entire uh, Obama administration since right. he was elected in, in 2008. And this is just the latest manifestation. Marsh? And 
And, and this is not sitting well with the American people. Um, the Alliance for Justice, People for the American Way, and several other organizations just released polling that Heart Research did. And it showed that nearly 70% of the American public believe that the Senate should give the President's nominee fair consideration, meaning a hearing and an up or down vote. Nearly 70%. And what's striking is that of that, only 28% thought otherwise. But of that number, not surprisingly, 90% of Democrats, 69% of independents agreed, but even a, ma a majority of Republicans, 49 to 46, thought that the nominee should have fair consideration, <coughs> meaning hearing an up or down vote. Independents, 69% of independents thought. But even more Republicans than not thought that the president's nominee should have a hearing. Where's a constitutional it's, conservative when you need one? Exactly, exactly. Caroline? They're, they're out there. Um, Richard Painter at the University of Minnesota, who worked in the Bush White House, in the White House Counsel's Office. I have spoken out at ACS blog. People can find it and read it. Um, but to call on the Senate to do its duty, let me just remind people that this is, again, not exceptional. The Senate has considered nominees to the Supreme Court in presidential election years six times in the last century, and including Justice Kennedy, who sits on the court right now, who was confirmed uh, in the last year of President Reagan's uh, uh, presidency. And therefore, this is something I, the American public gets deeply, that this is something that the Senate needs to and must well, do. And, and if you take it even further, I mean, Senator Grassley, as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is running for election this year. So he's in the last year of his six-year term. So maybe he shouldn't be able to vote or hold hearings or do whatever he's doing because he's in the last year of his term. It's just absurd. It just doesn't hold water, and the American people get it. Well, the one good thing is that they only have done this with Supreme Court nominees, right? <laughs> Why do you laugh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the truth is. Go yeah, that's, it. yeah. It. well, that is, that is absolutely untrue, and that's what I alluded to before in saying that this has been a long-term strategy of, of limiting this president's influence on the federal judiciary by blocking his judicial nominees. You know, in 2013, Senate Republicans filibustered consecutively three nominees to the D.C. Court of Appeals based not at all on any objection to the nominees in particular, based solely on their desire to keep the president's nominees off the federal courts. And this is an intentional strategy of hamstringing our federal courts as well as our agencies and simply trying to undermine the president for the sake of their own political agenda. This so-called conservative movement, whatever, uh, has used the Supreme Court to further their agenda. But it seems like those folks who want a fair court that, you know, takes cases and makes decisions on a fair basis, you know, haven't really used the court as well. It seems to me that way. You know, what could Americans gain if, if the people who really want a fair court got better at fighting for working families through the Supreme well, Court? Let me say this. I mean, you, in terms of what working families and everyday Americans have to lose or gain in the courts, the, the short answer is everything. But, you know, just to back up, I think it's important to realize that while progressives tend to view the courts as a pathway to justice correctly, the right wing views the courts as a pathway to power. And that has been their view for at least the last 40 or 50 years. And they have been extremely effective as using the courts as institutions to consolidate 
their own power. And they do it by investing tremendous amount of energy and resources and strategy in getting the judges who will advance their own policy agendas. And I think we need to, we need to care about who's on the courts. Caroline? So I was just going to um, pick up on what Kyle um, said, which was very right. And one of the cases we haven't mentioned yet, which we should put on the table, is Bush v. Gore. Please. So talking about consolidating power, and if you look at this, this string of cases that followed Bush v. Gore, including Citizens United and Shelby County, the pathway to power is very clear claim the presidency, eviscerate the ability to control the amount that billionaires and big corporations spend in elections, and make it harder and harder for people of color who've always who've been, had faced such barriers in voting, make it harder for them to vote. And it's a trifecta right there. You don't need much more to control uh, the, all the branches of government. Uh, and so I think people really need to pay attention to what the Supreme Court has been doing in terms of, it's not just laying out a roadmap, they're actually traveling down the road, uh, and we need to do a lot to catch up. I think, as Kyle and Marge have both said, there is so much at stake in terms of what working people have on the line in terms of what the Supreme Court does. Right, and, and I, think, I think you raised a really important question because I think it's probably true that right now, progressives are pretty careful about using the court because the court is stacked against um, the American people. We just did a report looking at 85 of very closely decided 5-4 decisions during the entire ten, last 10 years of the Roberts-Alito Court um, and going through issue by issue. And you see time and time and time again that the 5-4 majority is stacking the law and the Constitution against the American people. So you want to be careful about <laughs> figuring out which cases to bring to the court because you don't want the court to, 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 to make bad law. And that absolutely means that, that what my colleagues are saying is that progressives have to focus on, it, on, on getting involved in the fights over who sits on these courts. Absolutely. It's really, really important. It matters who the judges and justices are. And we have to embrace that as part of our agenda every bit as much as the far right does. Caroline? Well, so the American Constitution Society, one of the things that we do is try and, and encourage and support people who want to get uh, into the business of the rule of law, who want to become judges or academics or lawyers. Uh, and so you know, we really need to build a strong pipeline of new people who can come in and take those seats on the bench. Because you know, President Obama was pilloried early in his um, presidency for talking about the role of judges, including empathy. But honestly, what he was talking about was understanding what real people face in real life situations. And judges need to have that. They, need, they should come from a broader background and not just be people who come out of a corporate law practice or who have represented only companies, but instead know what real people face. Let me make a suggestion on who some of those people, potential judges in the pipeline, uh, need to be. Uh, we, Alliance for Justice did a, a report analyzing all of the president's federal judicial nominees, President Obama's, and the data is striking that nearly 90% were either corporate lawyers or prosecutors before being nominated to a judgeship, whereas approximately 3 or 4% had served as attorneys at public interest organizations. Federal prosecutors outnumber public defenders by more than three to one. Um, this is a, a systemic problem in judicial selection that lawyers who have had careers uh, representing people with everyday struggles um, and standing up for their, the rights of everyday people uh, simply aren't being considered enough uh, when it comes to judi judicial selection and that has an impact on the outcomes of cases.
Well, I'd like to just take a quick diversion that we're talking about personnel on the court and in courts generally, because one person who has been on the court for many years and who has made a uh, significant impact is uh, Antonin Scalia. Uh, I recall him saying that, uh, that the Congress uh, was uh, engaged in racial entitlement. I recall him making the point that black students cannot uh, compete on a on the normal fast track of a competitive university. I remember um, him making a lot of comments about people's rights, which uh, I found stunning. They weren't about deferring to Congress. They weren't about deferring to local authority. They weren't about deferring to democracy. They just seemed to be his uh, uh, opinion based on the way he thought the world ought to work. Um, I do feel bad for his family that he passed away, but. Uh, I, I don't think that he was a loss to the cause of justice in America. Well, I think his, you know, Justice Scalia's legacy is one of um, preserving the status quo of power and privilege uh, where it is, and really making a, making it a lot harder for working families, everyday Americans, to secure the equal justice and rights that our Constitution uh, guarantees. One thing that people need to remember when Republicans in the Senate start to claim that whoever follows Justice Scalia needs to be just like Justice Scalia. Let me remind you that Justice Marshall, the great Justice Marshall, was replaced by Justice Clarence Thomas. They were not in the same mold at all. And so the idea that somehow a conservative follows a conservative, we need to reject that out of hand. But Caroline, I mean, Justice Marshall was amazing in many ways. I mean, this is a guy who had gotten in cars and drove down to like, the backwaters of this country and tried murder cases uh, where people's, I mean, everything to them was on the line. He was a, a, such a hero, right? We all know that Justice Marshall was a hero of the civil rights movement who put his life on the line. Justice Thomas was completely the opposite in terms of the values he represented in his life history. And so the idea that somehow Scalia gets followed by Scalia well, we, what we need to do is do exactly the same and follow Scalia with a Justice Marshall. And the thing, Marge, you want to jump in well, on this? I just want to say the polling that came out today showed that the American people doesn't think, the majority of the American people does not think that a conservative should be replaced by conservative. They think it's about, it's about qualifications. So that's, it, it's, 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 it's an absurd proposition. And going back to Ju Justice Marshall, Thurgood Marshall, when he was, as a Supreme Court justice, when he sat there and reviewed a death penalty case, he was looking at that case from the perspective of somebody who knew exactly what that was all about. He was a trial lawyer. He sat in those rooms, in those jails, talking to those defendants and talking to their families and talking to those witnesses. He understood the, the under the hood type justice. Uh, and he was not some academic sitting in a nice room uh, pontificating. I remember, remember uh, Scalia once uh, opined, I think it was in the Herrera case, that, you know, if you have procedural due process, actual innocence is not relevant, which is a shocking yeah. thing to say in a, in a country. Not your own life isn't on the line. Well, you know, yeah, that's got to be somebody else's, you know, life on the line if you come to a callous, cold, 
unjust decision like that. Mm -hmm. And that perspective that Justice Marshall brought was so incredibly valuable. He was civil, iconic civil rights lawyer for LDF. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg defended, yep. fought for women's rights at the ACLU. And now that we have Republican senators saying, well, if you are a civil rights lawyer, if you work for the ACLU, that makes you somehow unqualified to be a federal judge. Um, it's just outrageous. Uh, or, what, or what about the wise Latina, you know, uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor? People who really bring some real life experience. I mean, the truth is, um, I just really want a good justice who listen, who, who has Absolutely. some respect for Congress, who has some respect for precedent, who and who takes the job seriously, you know, like Judge Earl Warren. I mean, he, exactly. you know, yeah. or, or, you know, Judge, yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Justice Brennan. Justice Brennan. Yeah, Congressman, Carolyn. I had just wanted to mention that um, Justice Scalia is known um, for uh, ex express, expressing a viewpoint uh, based on what's called originalism, whereas he claimed to understand what the founding fathers of the Constitution meant when they used certain terms, terms that are vague and open-ended, but nonetheless he knew what James Madison was thinking, and so that should dictate what courts do. You know, it, it, it's no coincidence that somehow what men, white men, property-owning, slave-owning men in the, in the 18th century might have thought is consistent with what many conservatives think now, and not with most of what most of us think, what the American public thinks due process or uh, equal opportunity should mean in this country. And it is quite ironic, as the congressman was suggesting at the beginning of this, that, um, and a, that, that we're having this fight over whether the Constitution says that, that the Senate has to perform its duties, regardless of whether right. this is an election year mm -hmm. for a president, and the seat that, that is at issue is a seat of an originalist who, if you look at the Constitution, it's pretty black and white, right? right but if somebody's elected for the full four years of their this, term. This <laughs> Justice Scalia called himself a faint-hearted originalist because every <laughs> once in a while, originalism wouldn't get him the outcome he wanted. Okay, so originalism and Bush v. Gore, how, did, how does that work out? Well, so it didn't. It didn't okay. at all. And, and, and he said, he said, it's not precedential. That means you can't cite this in later decisions. So but isn't the very purpose of the Supreme Court to set precedent? Indeed, but you know what he said to that? He said, get over it. Yeah, that get over a it. Quote, <laughs> a quote from Justice He relied Scalia. on that great canon of judicial thinking. Yes. Get over get it. Get over it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Very convenient. So, so, it matter, so does it kind of matter who's on the Supreme Court? Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, kind, yeah. Of, oh, kind, of yeah. kind of does. Kind of a big deal for that. And, and is it, does it really matter... For the Lily Ledbetters of this world, the workaday Americans who bust their tail to try to put food on the yeah. table and just want to get a fair hearing in court about their core economic issues like their pensions? That's a, a great question. I, I really want to zero in on what's at stake for working families when yeah, it comes please. to the Supreme Court. Because there was a time in our country, early 20th century, where the Supreme Court imposed what, what FDR called a no man's land of economic regulations. And they invalidated things like minimum wage hmm. laws, um, f uh, workplace safety laws, uh, restrictions on hours that employers child could demand labor. of their workers, child, child labor, labor laws as unconstitutional. Um, and it wasn't until uh, finally uh, 1937 where some of those decisions were overruled um, and, and federal labor 
Relations Act, for example, was upheld, a foundational law that guarantees the rights of workers to organize. And there is no secret that the right wing in this country has an agenda to go back to that time in our constitutional history uh, where all of the gains of the, the progressive uh, gains of the last 20th century will be entirely wiped out. They want to go back to what's commonly known as the Lochner era, where corporations can't be regulated at all, workers have no rights, there's no workplace safety guarantees, uh, there's no right to organize, and when we think about the, the several vacancies that we anticipate on the Supreme Court in the very near future, that is precisely what's at stake. And it's no coincidence that that's the last time in our history income inequality was about as bad as it is right now. And that's what the corporate right-wing agenda is going after on the Supreme Court. Right, yeah. and I just have to echo what Kyle was saying, which is that, that the corollary to the advancing corporate rights is the diminishing worker rights uh, in this court. That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? It's the other side of the coin. And you can see that we've had the Harris case, which dealt with the rights of home care workers uh, making it harder and harder for them to come together to lift up their voices to get a fair wage, and the Friedrichs case, which is now in front of the court, which would affect the ability of public employees to come together, and again, to, to argue for a better wage and better treatment in the workplace, and to the Roberts court, that has been something that they don't want to see. Instead, they want to allow billionaires and major corporations to run the government. Yeah, so, so like, for example, Harris versus Quinn. You know, this is in the heart of what working people, uh, you know, trying to organize themselves, trying to come together on the workplace to improve their lives. You know, when this was recently in front of the Supreme Court. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so the, so the Supreme Court in that case, and Justice Alito is the author, um, basically said that these workers weren't even employees. It didn't give them even the dignity of calling them employees and wouldn't let them come together. Uh, as state employees to argue for their rights. And as a result, making it so much harder for them to engage in collective action, to get better wages and better pay. And these are people who work their tails off. It's hard work and they deserve a fair pay. Uh, but instead, what the court did was it barred them from, from joining together. Right. And let's back up. I mean, there should, be no, there should be no question about the law on this matter. You know, the public workers have a right to organize. The Supreme Court said so unanimously in 1977. And what you've had, uh, as Carolyn pointed out, Justice Scalia, uh, write, or Justice Alito rather, writing that opinion and other labor opinions, where he is explicitly and gratuitously attacking longstanding precedent. And what he's saying is, Look, all you corporate interests that don't want working people to have a voice, to have any economic or political power, bring me these cases, bring these challenges, and I am open to it, and I'm trying to build a Supreme Court majority to overturn that law. And you talked about the difference between how progressives and the right view the court, and they are just very open about using it as a p political uh, policy-making institution, and we kind of need to open our eyes to that. And Marsh? You, yeah, and if you go back to the, the, the point about precedent is really important. If you go back to some of the key cases we've been talking about, uh, the court overturned precedent in Citizens United. The court overturned precedent in, voting, in the Shelby County voting rights case. The court, talking about overturning precedent in, in the right to organize cases. Right, so. Right. So it's, and, and, and it's not an accident, because the right is systematically going after the pillars of our democracy. And what are those pillars? Those pillars are about reasonable campaign finance rules. Those pillars are about voting rights. And those pillars are about the rights of workers. They are going after every single pillar that's essential to a well-functioning democracy. And they're using the court well, to do what it. What I think is so interesting about this is it really um, puts the lie to the designation of conservative. 
because this is not conservative. The whole idea of precedent is very conservative. It's the way that our, our system of law in the United States works, that you have to respect the law that has gone before and the decisions that have been made, unless there's a major reason to deviate. Instead, this Supreme Court has deviated with no reason, but only political reasons, to take down what Mar Marge rightly calls these pillars of our democracy. Um, and so this isn't conservative, this is actually radical. It's a radical restructuring of our society away from workers, away from the average person, and towards corporate interests. And if we want to talk about radical, going back to the point, the, there's nothing more radical than saying to a sitting pres president that because he's in his last term, last year of office, that he doesn't have a right to have his nominee receive fair consideration. And not only is precedent sort of a guiding principle of constitutional jurisprudence, but also deference to the democratic process, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. you know, and uh, the United States uh, Congress, which I'm a member of, did pass the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. and this case was taken up by the Supreme Court under, I think it's National, National Federation of Independent mm -hmm. Business versus Sibelius, mm -hmm. in which they actually upheld most of it, but invalidated a key part yeah, of it. Well, yeah, I you think know? this is the part that doesn't get talked about. Um, and we have yet to see where their cars are. Literally, went millions right? of people are, are not getting healthcare access because, right. because of this. Well, there are, well, so there are three pieces. Medicaid, One, Medicaid expansion. They held yeah. up the taxing power so that the, the, the part of the statute could function. But what they did was they struck down the spending power. That is, the ability to work with the states to control how they support the Medicaid population. And by striking that part down, in a very bizarre opinion, uh, it makes it, it hamstrings the federal government from using its spending power, its ability to say, hey, we've got this money, we can help you. You've got some poor people who need health care, we want to help you, we want to provide you money. They, they limited the ability to go forward on that, and as a result, a lot of the right-wing governors opted out of the program, leaving millions of Americans without, without health care. And that's it's astonishing. It's because of the Supreme Court's interpretation of Congress's spending authority, and that is huge. And who knows where that's going to go? Which, Marge, that's weird because I thought one of the canons of, of, of you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence is to defer to voters electing representatives who make laws. This court only defers to elected representatives when it serves the result they want to achieve. Right. Well, if it serves the result they want to achieve, fine. If it doesn't, and again, we can go through all <laughs> these cases. Yeah. You know, yeah, they overturned all the work the court did on the Voting Rights Act. The, the campaign finance laws were Yeah, what is it, like 15,000 I mean, pages yeah. of, so, so of it, uh, voting rights if testimony? If it serves their purpose to, to um, go with a congressional interpretation, they will. But if yeah. it doesn't, they won't. Let me just just say Justice that. Scalia was very quick to uh, wax poetic about the virtues of uh, state democracy when they were uh, banning the right to, to marry the person you love. You know, right. That's the principle he wanted right. to defend there. But forget about it when you try to regulate guns. Forget about it when you try to protect voting rights. Uh, in those well, it, cases, well, in Heller, which is the gun case, by the way, yes. he basically ignored a well-regulated militia. He ignored the Constitution he, yes. and just dove right. into find a private right. Which, again, shows you the uh, the convenience of originalism as commonly well, understood. And the original <laughs> deference, right. deference yeah. to Congress, I think one of, the, one of the things that was most <coughs> ironic or maybe exposed the greatest hypocrisy was that Shelby County, the voting rights case, right. and the Defense of Marriage Act, were decisions that came that were argued back to back. And in one, the Shelby County case, Justice Scalia went on and on about how, how it was clearly not constitutional because Congress supported it so strongly. The Defense of Marriage Act, which prevented 
gays and lesbians from getting married, to pre prevented their marriages from being recognized, that Congress passed, Justice Scalia was aghast that the court wasn't respecting the act of Congress. Right. So there's no organizing no, principle no there. No consistency. <laughs> now, here's another case that always struck me as kind of weird. Um, so the Supreme Court is faced with a case in which they've got the religious rights of the business owner, <laughs> and then they got the rights of their employees mm -hmm. and instead of finding that employees should be able to make decisions about their own health and safety they say that no these employees have to live up under the regime of the employer's religious yeah. ideas of course i'm talking about burwell versus hobby lobby co well, companies they actually and they did something even worse in that case because what they did is they said not just that there's a religious liberty interest that corporations have but they totally undermined an actually well-designed and well-thought-out statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was intended to protect one's practice of religion. Right. So if there were a religious ceremony that was important to you, the, the government couldn't abridge that. But it never that law was never intended to say, well, my religious beliefs are offended, therefore I get to use my religious beliefs as a sword in order to discriminate <laughs> well, against you. Well, there was you. also it a was balance, never, right? It was never intended. It was intended to be a balance. And, and the court just got that decision so wrong, and it's such a dangerous precedent. Well, recognizing precedent. that corporations have religion is, I think, yeah, that's kind of weird. Is weird. Yeah. completely they, they, new. They have free free expression rights. They have religion. Right. right. They're know. individuals. They can they can get involved in politics. Right. I so, wonder can they can they run for office like a corporation? Well, first, well, that's the next question, right? Can they sit right. on a jury? Right. Could they run for president? I mean, it's really amazing. We live in an odd time. You know, in this Lochner area, I want our listeners to dig it up, you know, read about it. Because it was a time in which, you know, the corporate interests prevailed. It was a time in which um, that, uh, that democracy was undermined and thwarted. And it was a time, uh, it was not a good time in America. Um, so look, as we begin to, to, to wrap up, are there other examples in which the rights or interests of working people were at stake in, in the courts and the Supreme Court just sort of ruthlessly decided what the what the big money boys in the country club said. Well, I, you know, I think a case that we have to talk about, and we haven't got there yet, and, and Kyle and has done a lot of work on this as well, is, is the Walmart case. Mm. So, you know, this is, we've talked about collective action. The other way, besides working with other workers through a union, um, is to bring a lawsuit together. So for workers who've been discriminated, in the case of the Walmart uh, situation, it was workers who've been discriminated against on the basis of race and gender. And they wanted to come together because they were being paid less. And a class action allows low wage workers who make very little money, they can't afford individual lawyers. It's not cost effective. So the class action mechanism allows people to come together and argue together and have a global solution to help all these workers. Well, the Supreme Court said, that's not gonna happen uh, uh, either. Uh, yeah. And they have now made it so much harder. That means that we're low wage workers literally have no real right. And, and it means the company can do to them what they want. Yeah, Pretty the, much. The, the yeah. court is, yeah, the court essentially made it impossible for Walmart and other companies of that size to be held accountable for wrongdoing they do on a nationwide mm. scale. I mean, it's almost like a too big to fail kind so of they, so if you, It's like a too, too big, big to, to be held liable. So you can still, still sue one-on-one but your little tiny case, right? Yeah, for a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. No lawyer can take that on. Right. Client, if the, you can get a, if you can get even a, if you can get a lawyer, get a lawyer. Right. And let me tell you, as a person who practiced law for twenty years before I got to Congress, two thousand dollars 
winning, that, that we just can't justify yeah, that, that's exactly, that case. That's exactly why class actions are so important because right. it, it allows you to aggregate the claims. But really, they, the principle was that, you know, so this, these companies are too big to sue. And too big to sue, that, too big not, to jail, and right. too big no, to no, fail. Nice to be a multinational yeah, corporation, I guess. Right. And so they have to change their practices in one state or one town or one city because they have one small case. For a little while, they for a little if while. they get somebody who will hold them accountable at all. How does that solve all? the harm right. that they're doing nationwide? It, it just it doesn't. doesn't. Well, it doesn't. And they, this also applies to consumers. I mean, the same, the same rules are, I mean, of course, applying the same rules and to, to make it much harder for consumers to bring class action. So you have a $30 claim. Well, it's important to you, but that's not enough to go in court. Right. So you need to be able to aggregate your claim so you can stop the bad practice. But $30 claim over the course of uh, 5 million people is a whole, it's that's worth exactly their while right. to rip and, everybody and off. there's a little right. bit of a wake up, right? Yeah, that's yeah. It's a lot of like your cell phone bill, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just uh, ask you guys. First of all, let me thank you all for being here. I just want to say I'm incredibly grateful. But I want you all, all three of you, uh, Marge, Kyle, Caroline, to just offer your take on what can the average working American who wants to see, who wants to just get a fair shot from the Supreme Court or any court, what, what should they do now that the Supreme Court is kind of like 4-4 between the, the conservatives and the, and the other folks, uh, and there's this opening and uh, Mitch McConnell is refusing to do his constitutional duty and, and, and even give anyone a hearing. Uh, what, what should people we do? We need to, need to raise our voices. Because certainly on the right, and we talked about that at the beginning of this conversation, they have been stamping their feet and yelling about the Supreme Court for a long time. And for those of us who care about real values and equal rights for all Americans, we need to do the same and we need to make our voices heard. So that means contacting every single elected official. That means writing to your newspaper. That means writing to your senator and calling your senator. It means absolutely pushing as much as you can everyone you know to care because we need to care more than they care and we need to make sure that people know that but what if they say we're judicial activists and we want judicial activism no we want we, we want fair treatment we want a fair court we want a balanced court and we should not be in any way ashamed about advocating we're for just that. asking for the vacancy to be filled at this <laughs> <about> point <laughs> well I, I really like marge is saying you know that, that we can't be ashamed uh, mm -hmm. in this in this debate you know the Ted Cruz, other uh, Republican candidates for president, Republican members of the Senate, you know, they, they want to have a debate about the future of American law. I mean, they're talking about the issues. Ted Cruz is out there talking about guns. He's talking about restricting choice for women. He's being out in the open about it. And I think that working people, progressives generally, ought to welcome that debate. And we, as Carolyn said, we need to raise our voices and say, you know, we don't want a court that just consolidates power for those who already have it. We want a court who protects the, the rights of everyday people equally and who understands the everyday struggles um, and lives of working people around this country. And right now what we're saying is just tell your senators to do their job. Well, on behalf of We The Podcast, I want to give a very strong thanks to Marge Baker for People of the American Way, Caroline Fredrickson with the American Constitutional Society, and Kyle Berry with the Alliance for Justice. You guys have brought a lot of light to a very important topic today, and I am very grateful, and I thank you for that. Uh, again, you know, this is a critical topic. Um, I believe Caroline said, raise your voices, right? And, and Marge said, don't be ashamed. Don't be apologetic <laughs> for demanding that your constitution is followed. Kyle Berry said the same thing. So uh, let's, let's all figure out how to do that, everybody. This has been another edition of We The Podcast, the show about how people outside the billionaire and millionaire class engage the economy. The Supreme Court is part of this, and we'll see you next time.
listeners of We The Podcast, we're going to ask you to help us out. Rate, review, and subscribe to We The Podcast. Thank you. This episode of We The Podcast was produced by Abby Shanfield, Brett Morrow, and edited by Zach Free.